One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Steelers at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, December 4th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42. Game Overview by Pappy. This game has a wide range of outcomes. The primary offensive pieces in both passing games are underpriced. The Falcons run the ball more than any other team in the league. This game is likely to have too low ownership for its potential upside. How Pittsburgh will try to win. The 4-7 Steelers come into Week 13 off a narrow home win against the Colts. Down three games in their division and three games from the last AFC wildcard spot, the Steelers are only playing for the silliest stat in football. Mike Tomlin has never had a losing season. Tomlin has always been one of the league's worst coaches. Propped up by the Steelers' laundry list of Hall of Fame coordinators, Tomlin has never called plays on either side of the ball. The best GM in football, recently retired Kevin Colbert, and extremely talented rosters. Check out the Steelers' draft classes the past 20 years during his tenure. While most coaches come into a poor situation where the previous coach was fired, Tomlin inherited a team with a young Hall of Fame QB and an elite defense from a retiring Bill Cowher, who was one year removed from winning the Super Bowl. Going 8-8 with immense talent shouldn't be considered a victory. Coaches should be judged by how they perform against their team's Vegas win total, but never had a losing season means a lot to Tomlin, and he's going to have the Steelers playing hard to finish the season. The Steelers play somewhat quickly, 11th in overall pace, but would like to play slower, 16th in situation neutral pace, and have been frequently forced to speed up later in games when they are chasing points, 8th in second half pace. The Steelers' pace doesn't tell us much about their offense, since they are essentially middle of the road in most situations, with the caveat that they will run more no huddle if they are losing late in a game. The Falcons have been pasted through the air, 29th in DVOA, and demolished on the ground, 25th in DVOA. As noted in prior Falcons Edge write-ups, defensive coordinator Dean Pease runs one of the most complicated defenses in football that often relies on few down linemen. Pease's system has created a weakness in stopping the run due to the scheme and a weakness in stopping the pass due to personnel. The Steelers' O-line hasn't been good overall, 23rd ranked by PFF, but they have been strong pass blockers, 8th in pass blocking efficiency, and they are facing a Falcons team that generates almost no rush, second lowest pressure rate, which means Kenny Pickett should have a clean pocket. Unfortunately, the Steelers' offense is being run by Matt Canada, who might be more inept than Tomlin. Their wide receiver route trees consist of curl routes, go routes, and slants. Irrational coaches are harder to predict, and even though it makes sense for the Steelers to come out passing, it's likely they try and stay balanced unless forced to be more aggressive. How Atlanta will try to win The 5-7 Falcons come into Week 13 technically only a half game out of winning the sorry NFC South. Tampa Bay holds the tiebreaker. The Falcons have been stronger at home, 4-2, than on the road, 1-5, and and they are a rare 5-7 team that still has legitimate playoff hope. The Falcons are coming off a narrow loss where they threw an interception in the end zone in the final minute against the Commanders. The Falcons have had 9 of their 12 games determined by one score, only losing to the Bengals by 18 points and the Panthers by 10 points. Despite their record, the Falcons rarely get killed, and they aren't likely to win by a large margin either. That's because of their style, which lends itself to competitive games. The Falcons might not look like a success from the outside, but inside their organization, they must be thrilled to still be in the playoff hunt this late in the season. 
The Falcons play slow, 29th in overall pace, and don't speed up in any situation. Their high watermark in speed, 23rd in second half pace, shows up if they are losing, but since the Falcons play so many close games, it's rare that they are down enough for them to feel like they must put their foot on the gas. However, this is at least some evidence suggesting they will quicken their pace if they need to catch up. This isn't enough to consider the Falcons a game-flow-dependent team, but it's worth keeping in mind that we don't have a big sample size to predict how they'll react if they do fall behind by two scores early. The Steelers' defense has been adequate through the air, 16th in DVOA, and strong on the ground, 8th in DVOA. The Steelers' season-long defensive stats are hardly relevant because of all the injuries they've suffered, but they still rank in the top half of the league and are finally mostly healthy. Arthur Smith is an old-school coach who is an ex-college lineman and came up through the NFL ranks as a tight end and line coach. The Falcons love to run, 52.5%, most in the NFL, and the Steelers being weaker against the pass is unlikely to dissuade the Falcons from trying to pound the rock. Arthur Smith is outdated, but he is good at what he does, as the Falcons' O-line, 8th rated by PFF, has outperformed expectations, especially in the running game, 3rd in adjusted line yards. Expect the Falcons to come out with their typical ground-and-pound game plan, but with a willingness to open things up if they fall behind on the scoreboard. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a low total of 42, and it's expected to be a run-heavy affair between two teams that lack explosive offenses. Vegas likes this one to be competitive, but the line has moved a couple of points, opening at Atlanta minus 1.5 and, and moving to Pittsburgh as a one-point favorite. There is a chance that this game could go very differently which will be explored in the DFS interpretation section, but the most likely game flow has the Falcons staying run-heavy and the Steelers playing balanced, resulting in a slow-paced game that comes down to the final quarter and is ultimately decided by one score. Broncos at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, December 4th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 38.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The Curious Case of the Broncos. Denver surrenders the third-fewest points per game, but they are stuck in some sort of twisted alternate reality on offense, scoring just 14.3 points per game, the fewest in the league. The Ravens play at a slow pace with elevated rush rates behind heavy personnel alignments, like almost 100% of their snaps over the past three games have come from either 21 or 12 personnel, and four different ball carriers are expected to see work, while no pass catcher outside of Mark Andrews is expected to see more than 65-70% to 70% of the offensive snaps. Lamar Jackson plus Mark Andrews is always GPP viable for the upside the pairing provides, but it's more likely that no player returns GPP viability than it is for that pairing to hit here. Basically, consider Jackson plus Andrews, or consider fading this one. I'm writing this one up early in the week before the first practice reports are released early Wednesday morning, so check in on the injury reports from each team as the week progresses. That said, the primary unknowns currently appear to be Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler from the Broncos, each of whom is unlikely to sway the likeliest scenarios laid out below. How Denver will try to win. Broncos coach Nathaniel Hackett has truly been one of the worst game planners and managers this season, somehow riding a top five defense backwards through time to a 3-8 and record. Typically, teams with elite defenses are able to play at slower paces with elevated rush rates, but the ineptitude of the Denver offense has forced Hackett into the eighth fastest first half pace of play, 10th fastest situation neutral pace of play, and 2nd fastest pace of play when trailing by 7 or more points. Furthermore, poor offensive line play and the season-ending injury to electric running back Javante Williams 
have forced additional pressure on a Denver pass offense that has struggled to adapt to a quarterback that doesn't like throwing into pressure with wide receivers that struggle to separate. We also finally saw emotions boil over last week with defensive tackle Mike Purcell yelling at quarterback Russell Wilson as he came off the field in an embarrassing loss. Not only that, but reports have surfaced pretty much all season regarding Russell Wilson's leadership, or lack thereof. Former Seattle teammates bashed the quarterback for his recluse-like leadership, which has come to light once again in Denver with the quarterback reportedly losing the locker room. Yeah, not great, Bob. 8. That's the number of backs that have seen offensive snaps for the Broncos this season. To say their run game has been tumultuous is a vast understatement, quite honestly. The team started the season with high hopes behind a backfield tandem in Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon, but has been left with a backfield consisting of three practice squad elevations after Williams suffered a season-ending injury and Melvin Gordon fumbled his way off the roster. Mike Boone, who started the season third on the death chart, hit the injured reserve after week seven. Chase Edmonds was brought in from Miami and promptly hit the injured reserve with an ankle injury, leaving the team with practice squad signee Latavius Murray, fullback Andrew Beck, practice squad signee Marlon Mack, and Devin Ozigbo, who was signed to the active roster prior to Week 12, only to be waived on Monday following the game. In the embarrassing 23-10 loss to the Panthers, Murray played a whopping 82% snap rate, carrying 13 times for 92 yards and catching his only target for 6 yards. Expect another hefty yet inefficient workload for the veteran back this week, considering the state of the Denver backfield, charged with overcoming a poor run-blocking offensive line against the third-ranked rush defense by yards allowed per carry. Murray has never been known as a high-target running back, but at least the Broncos have filtered 85 targets to the position this season, tied for the sixth most in the league. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.29 net-adjusted line yards metric and 3.94 average yards per carry. Earlier in the season, I theorized that Russ's struggles through the air could be a case of his pass catchers failing to separate, considering Russ has been graced with athletic pass catchers that generate their own separation throughout his career. It's probably still too early to tell if that is a contributing factor to this offense's struggles, but it seems to be holding water. Cortland Sutton currently ranks 78th in the league in average separation at target and 63rd in the league in average cushion. Jerry Judy currently ranks 94th in the league in average separation at target and 66th in average cushion. KJ Hamler does not have the requisite snaps or routes run to qualify, but has been equally as bad, while Kendall Hinton and Greg Dulcich lead the team in both metrics. It's actually quite remarkable that Denver pass catchers have a combined two games over 100 yards receiving, which came via Judy in Week 1 and Sutton in Week 2. The Denver pass-catching core is also banged up as Judy and Hamler have been out of the lineup since Week 8. Judy hurt his ankle after one snap in Week 10 following the team's Week 9 bye. We don't yet know the respective statuses of Judy and Hamler, who would each likely re-enter the starting lineup should they return from extended absences, but it appears likely we see Kendall Hinton see another game of increased involvement either way, considering the lack of depth at the position. The team has primarily shifted to a heavy-based offense through the injuries at wide receiver, with Greg Dulcich, Eric Tomlinson, and Eric Saubert combining to form an offense based out of 12 personnel over the previous three weeks. All Denver pass catchers have struggled against man coverage this season, a coverage scheme the Ravens played an above-average rate behind a defensive front that now blitzes at a below-average rate, instead electing to generate organic pressure up front, utilizing a hybrid 4-3 front. How Baltimore will try to win The Ravens are coming off a devastating loss to the Jaguars on a last-minute two-point conversion in a game that saw Ravens pass catchers drop three touchdowns in the first half alone, 
including an uncharacteristic drop from tight end Mark Andrews in the end zone. The Ravens utilized the highest rate of 21 personnel in the league through fullback Patrick Richard, adding as much as 50% 12 personnel utilization since Rashad Bateman went down in Week 8. Considering the team's tendencies and the matchup against one of the league's biggest run-funnel defenses, expect another heavy dose of 21 and 12 personnel and increased rush rates. Baltimore likes to play at a snail's pace, 30th-ranked first-half pace of play and 31st-ranked overall pace of play, with a balanced offense, neutral pass rate over expectation, with the 6th highest overall rush rate, which should be allowed to continue against the Broncos here. The Ravens continue to hold the top spot in the AFC North by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin. They currently sit tied with the Bengals in record, but they would win the tiebreaker via head-to-head, which almost goes out the window considering the two teams play in the final week of the season. As in, motivation should be high for this team coming off an ugly last-second loss to the Jags. Gus Edwards returned to the lineup last week after missing two games with hamstring and knee injuries, immediately regaining the lead role in the backfield. That role is likely to be capped around 50% of the offensive snaps, considering his lengthy injury history, and will likely yield 16-18 to running back opportunities in a solid matchup on the ground. Expect Kenyon Drake to serve as the primary change of pace and clear passing down back, with Justice Hill also likely to mix in for early down work. Considering Lamar Jackson has averaged just over 10 carries per game this season, 12 per game over the last three contests, this run game should be considered a four-headed monster moving forward leaving fantasy value squarely in the high-variance realm of efficiency and touchdowns. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above-average 4.43 net-adjusted line yards metric against a run-funnel defense allowing 4.68 yards per running back carry this season. Most notably, the Broncos have allowed only 125 rush yards to opposing quarterbacks this season, third-fewest in the league, but have yet to face a mobile quarterback, leaving the range of outcomes rather wide regarding Lamar Jackson's expected rushing floor and ceiling. Pass catchers consist of tight end Mark Andrews in a near-every-down roll, league-leading route rate at 89%, second-most slot snaps amongst tight ends, second-most targets, and most air yards. Devin Duvernay in a 65-75% snap rate roll, Demarcus Robinson in a 60-65% snap rate roll, and James Prochet and veteran speedster Deshaun Jackson chopping up 25-30 to 30 offensive snaps. Woof. To consider this passing game a Mark Andrews or bust endeavor is likely an understatement. Although wide receivers Devin Duvernay and Marcus Robinson have provided sporadic best ball spike week potential, it's really not enough to matter on a full slate of games through the lens of GPP viability to combine games with more than 20 fantasy points, one from each player this season. Furthermore, tight end Mark Andrews has been optimal exactly twice this season, and in each game, quarterback Lamar Jackson was also optimal going for multiple touchdowns and rushing for 101-plus in each instance. That leaves a very clear path regarding how to handle this passing game from a DFS perspective. Pair up Jackson and Andrews, or leave it alone. Likeliest Game Flow This game sees a matchup between a team that wants to win in the trenches, Baltimore, and a team that can't win anywhere on offense, leaving the expected game environment likely to disappoint. The Ravens have at least shown an ability and propensity to attack aggressively downfield if forced to do so, Problem is, the Broncos are so unlikely to force them to do so, and we're likely to see the Ravens simply try and grind out a win via sustained drives and defense. Now consider the fact that the Ravens have played almost 100% of their offensive snaps from heavy personnel sets, 21 and 12 personnel, over the previous three weeks, 
utilize a three-headed running back rotation that also includes 10 to 12 carries from quarterback Lamar Jackson and have no single pass catcher outside of Mark Andrews expected to see more than 65 to 70 percent of the offensive snaps and we're left with nothing that stands out on paper here for the Ravens. Furthermore, the Broncos rank dead last in the league in scoring per game and are implied for just over two touchdowns, actually more than their season average, meaning we're left with a lot to be desired as far as the game environment goes. Basically, volume should be sparse, leaving potential fantasy value in the hands of the variance gods, efficiency, and touchdowns. Packers at Bears. Kickoff Sunday, December 4th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44 and a half. Due to time constraints, the Edge audio for Packers at Bears will not be available this week. Please visit OneWeekSeason.com to read the write-up. Jaguars at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, December 4th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 51 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. DeAndre Swift has been removed from the Lions injury report for the first time since week one. Guard Evan Brown and offensive tackle Penny Sewell missed practice on Wednesday for the Lions, while guard Jonah Jackson is attempting to make his way through the league's concussion protocol. This is important to this matchup, which we'll get into below. Travis Etienne was listed as a limited participant on Wednesday. Head coach Doug Peterson early stated that Etienne has a chance to play this weekend when asked about his status after Etienne failed to finish the team's Week 12 game with a foot injury, which doesn't really tell us much. Pay attention to his status in practice as the week progresses. A game consisting of two teams in the bottom six in defensive drive success rate allowed and top eight in offensive drive success rate. How Jacksonville will try to win. The Jaguars have played at a top 12 pace of play in almost every situational split outside of when leading by seven or more points, during which they completely flipped the script and played a bottom two pace, which makes sense. Their pass rate over expectation, PROE, lands right at league average, and their overall pass rate sits just below league average. The biggest change this season has been the coaching staff, as Doug Peterson has long been known as a player's coach, one that is very good at getting his team ready for the upcoming opponent. Furthermore, Peterson is a coach that tends to tailor his game plan to what the opponent gives them, which has translated to only one loss all season by more than eight points. As in, the Jaguars have lost to only the Chiefs by more than one possession this season. And since they have been largely reactive in their game management, that has also kept this team from many shootouts this season. The Jaguars' backfield is one to keep an eye on as far as injuries go throughout the week, as Travis Etienne has handled a robust workload since the team dealt away James Robinson at the trade deadline, seeing 78% or more of the offensive snaps in each healthy game since Week 7. Furthermore, de facto change of pace back, Jamichael Hasty handled a robust 78% of the offensive snaps after Etienne left with a foot injury last week. Daryl Henderson was claimed off waivers from the Rams prior to Week 12, and should eventually fill the second running back role for the Jaguars once he's had time to get the offense down, which may or may not be the case in his first full week of practice with the organization. Etienne's level of practice participation should be telling, as Peterson reported that the back could have returned to last week's game, but they didn't want to risk further injury, indicating to me that he should be thought of as a full go if he returns to practice at any point this week. Since the Jaguars have been largely reactive in their game management this season, there is a path to a massive workload for the lead back against a Lions team that has been gashed by opposing backfields to the tune of 4.77 yards allowed per running back carry. 
Furthermore, we've seen Etienne amass elite workloads in the games the Jaguars have controlled over the previous five weeks, with as many as 30 running back opportunities during that time. The matchup on the ground yields a slightly above average 4.42 net adjusted line yards metric, while Jacksonville backs have overperformed their offensive line's blocking metrics by the largest margin of any team in the league this season. Continuing the evidence towards a reactive game management stance, quarterback Trevor Lawrence has two games with 23 pass attempts or fewer, and four games with 40 pass attempts or more this season, leaving him with one of the wider range of outcome potentials as far as volume goes of any quarterback on the slate, or in the league for that matter. Furthermore, both of the games with 23 pass attempts or fewer came in one possession losses, so it's not as simple as the Jaguars will open up their offense when forced to. If the run game is working, and if the Jaguars are not forced into increased aerial aggression early in the game, the team will simply continue looking to exploit whatever the opponent is giving them. The team has played primarily from 11 personnel this season, unless their opponent allows them to bias their attack towards the ground, during which they have shown a propensity to mix in increased rates of 12 personnel via increased snap rates for blocking tight end Chris Manhurts. Finally, the target distribution amongst the top four pass catchers has been largely spread out, with Christian Kirk leading the way with 27.4% targets per route run rate and 24.5% team target market share, wide receiver two numbers, how Detroit will try to win. The Lions continue to start games with a moderate pace, 14th ranked first half pace of play, and increased rush rates with a propensity to adjust to the game environment from there. As in, they would prefer to continue to keep the ball on the ground and control the time of possession, but have largely been unable to do so this season due to a defense that is allowing the most points per drive, the most yards per drive, and has the worst drive success rate allowed in the league. For all the struggles defensively from the Lions this season, this is still a team that has hung in there against difficult opponents all season, with losses to the Eagles by 3, 38-35, the Vikings by 4, 28-24, the Seahawks by 3, 48-45, the Dolphins by 4, 31-27, and the Bills by 3 last week, 28-25. Their PROE value sits at 23rd in the league, while their overall pass rate ranks 20th, a further indication of how they'd like to win if afforded the opportunity. We've spoken to the difference in production of quarterback Jared Goff when given time versus when under presser, which is a key aspect of this game considering three starting offensive linemen are dealing with injuries, and the Jaguars have generated pressure at an above-average 24% rate this season. Expect a ball-out-quick offensive game plan through the air and a running back trio in the backfield. The presumed starter in this backfield entering the season was DeAndre Swift, who has only participated in three fully healthy games this season. He has seen 34% or fewer of the offensive snaps on each of the previous four games after re-aggravating an ankle injury and adding a shoulder injury to the list in Week 8. That said, this is the first week since all the way back in, checking notes, Week 1, where he is completely off the injury report. Your guess is as good as mine as to what snap rate to expect with that information, but I would tentatively expect a slight increase in the menial work he has received over the previous four weeks. It is likely that Jamal Williams remains the primary early down back and short yardage goal line back, with Justin Jackson likeliest of the bunch to see his workload scaled back should Swift's increase. That said, I expect Jackson to remain involved, further diluting the expected spread in volume amongst the three. The matchup on the ground yields an average 4.39 net adjusted line yards metric against the Jacksonville defense holding opponents to just 3.98 yards per running back carry. 
things get interesting in the pass game for both the good and the bad, as in wide range of outcomes. On one hand, the Jaguars rank 30th in DVOA against the pass, getting shredded by slot-wide receivers and are one of the top five pass-funnel defenses in the league. On the other hand, the injuries to Detroit's offensive line and consistent pressure generated by the Jacksonville front can create a dynamic that could disrupt Jared Goff and the Lions' pass offense. In all, I would expect an additional emphasis on a ball-out-quick game plan through the air, which, when paired with the primary holes in Jacksonville's 3-4 base, multiple fronts, dynamic blitz defense under defensive coordinator Mike Caldwell, who was an understudy to Todd Bowles for over a decade, it should play to a slight bump to Amon Ross St. Brown's usage out of the slot, 42.1% slot snap rate. DJ Chark saw his snap rate jump substantially in his second game back from injury last week, getting up to 73% after playing only 16% of the offensive snaps a week prior his first game back. The other layer here is that Week 13 marks Josh Reynolds' second game back from injury, who could see a similar jump in participation. That would likely leave Khalif Raymond on the outside looking in. Fullback Jason Cabinda's involvement has come and gone since he returned to action three weeks ago, but I would tentatively expect an offense utilizing 11 personnel as its base alignment. The heavy zone principles shown from Jacksonville's defense theoretically boost Detroit tight end expectations, but the Lions have utilized a three-headed tight end monster since the team dealt away TJ Hawkinson. Likeliest game flow. There are a lot of moving pieces with this game, the primary of which are the injuries to the Lions' offensive line and the uncertainty surrounding Travis Etienne in Jacksonville. In a perfect world, Etienne would be a borderline workhorse and there wouldn't be offensive line issues in Detroit, yet here we are. That leaves the door open for Detroit to disappoint offensively and for the one spot of expected concentration to be a bit of a concern from Jacksonville, introducing quite a bit of uncertainty surrounding this game. That said, the matchup for either team and the likeliest scenario lead to an increased production for the Detroit slot receiver and tight end positions and the Jacksonville offense as a whole, which keeps the potential for the game to erupt firmly on the table. I simply wrote the latter portion of this write-up the way I did to highlight the fact that this game environment does have a rather wide range of outcomes due to some of the injury-induced variants present here. As things currently stand, we could get early news in either direction that would influence the game. Finally, each team is clearly capable of playing to a shootout considering the top 8 marks in offensive efficiency and bottom 6 marks in defensive efficiency from each squad, but each team is also highly unlikely to push the game environment on their own and equally as unlikely to generate splash plays, leaving a very small percentage chance of the game environment truly opening up into something you likely can't win without. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Browns at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, December 4th. 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 47. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Deshaun Watson's return to the NFL will draw far more attention to this game than you would expect for two teams with a combined 5-16-1 record. Both teams have bottom-tier rushing defenses and offenses built around their running games. Cleveland has personnel advantages on both sides of the ball and has been much better this year than their 4-7 record indicates. How Cleveland Will Try to Win the Browns have stayed true to themselves this season, leaning heavily on their running game and playing at a moderate pace for the duration of the season with Jacoby Brissett as their quarterback. The Browns have the fifth lowest pass rate over expectation in the NFL this year, 
and ranked 26th in the NFL in situation-neutral pace of play. This team has long been built on its running game and offensive line, and has continued to lean on those strengths whenever possible. The debut of Deshaun Watson in a Browns uniform will be intriguing to watch, and it remains to be seen if the Browns will shift to a more aggressive and pass-centric approach with a premier signal caller under center. For this week's matchup, the Browns face a bottom-of-the-barrel Texans run defense that should fit nicely for Watson's return after nearly two years without playing a regular season snap. His last game was in January of 2021. The Texans rank 31st in run defense DVOA by Football Outsiders and 29th in yards per carry allowed. The film junkies agree with the numbers, as PFF grades the Texans' defense 30th in run defense and 29th in tackling. The Browns should open up with a heavy dose of Nick Chubb and some Kareem Hunt mixed in, while exposing the Texans on the intermediate and deep levels of the field in the passing game through play-action concepts and using Watson's strength as a deep passer to take some shots downfield. The Browns' offense will likely open up significantly in the next few weeks down the stretch of the season, but this week may not be the time when we see them fully unleash things as the Texans' run defense will let Watson dust off the rust and pick his spots. The Texans' pass defense is nothing to fear either and ranks poorly as well, making it likely that the Browns' passing game should have efficiency and success through the air, even if volume is hard to find. How Houston Will Try to Win You could make the argument that, at this point in the season, the Texans are actually better off not winning games. There should be no doubt that everyone in the organization will be amped up for this game. The public relations fiasco and public fighting over the Deshaun Watson situation left a stain on the team that will stick around for quite some time and has ripple effects in all areas of the building. The Texans changed quarterbacks last week from the struggling Davis Mills to Kyle Allen. While the Texans struggled early and were never really in the game against the Dolphins, Allen did seem to find a rhythm in the second half as the Texans scored 15 second-half points after being shut out and only having 35 total yards of offense in the first half. The Texans' greatest successes this season have seemed to occur when they have been able to feature Damian Pierce in the running game and keep games close. This week, they are in luck as they face a Browns run defense that has been just as putrid as their own. Cleveland joins the Texans' run defense, ranking bottom five in the NFL in pretty much every statistical category, and we should expect a lot of handoffs to Pierce early on in this game. When Allen started having success through the air in the second half last week, he did most of his damage when targeting wide receiver Brandon Cooks and tight end Jordan Aikens. Allen has never been a particularly strong deep ball thrower, but is able to distribute the ball fairly accurately when given time. Miles Garrett and the Browns' pass rush could pose a problem for the Texans' offensive line that PFF grades 29th in pass blocking, meaning that Houston will need to focus on short area concepts against the Browns' zone-heavy scheme when they do throw the ball. Likeliest Game Flow The Browns' offense has a lot more firepower and advantages on both the ground and in the air, making it highly likely that they will be able to score some first-half points in this game. The Texans' defense has surrendered a combined 50 first-half points in their last two games, while the Browns have scored a first-quarter touchdown in four of their last five games. The Texans, on the other hand, have struggled offensively all season and rank 31st in the NFL in scoring. This makes it likeliest that the Browns will take an early lead and are in control for most of the game. From a pace perspective, neither team plays fast, and both teams like to lean on the run while having advantageous matchups on the ground. This makes it likely that the game clock moves quickly in this one, and play volume, as well as total possessions, are likely to be low. 
If somehow the Texans were able to build a lead, this would likely be a huge hit to this game's scoring potential, as they will do everything they can to bleed the clock while also leaning on their shell-based zone defense to force the Browns to methodically move the ball rather than attacking via chunk plays. Jets at Vikings. Kickoff Sunday, December 4th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Christian Derrissaw missed practice to begin the week with his second concussion in two weeks, which is likely to keep him out of action in week 13. Michael Carter missed practice on Wednesday for the Jets with a low ankle sprain that forced him from last week's game against the Bears. Head coach Robert Sala called his absence maintenance, insinuating that he is likely to play this week. Mike White drew the start for the Jets last week after Zach Wilson was made a healthy and active. There have been no reports indicating a change to the quarterback situation moving forward from New York. A large piece of this game will be decided by how the Jets choose to run coverages against one of the most elite wide receivers in the league in Justin Jefferson. How New York will try to win. The recipe for the 7-4 Jets has remained fairly consistent this season. Disrupt opposing drives via a lockdown defense, top five in all efficiency metrics, heavy zone concepts, organic pressure, manage the game environment through a balanced offense and slow to moderate pace, and try not to lose the game on offense. After starting the season with an underperforming defense that forced the Jets into increased aerial aggression over the first four weeks, the Jets have not had a single game with higher than league average offensive plays run from scrimmage over their last seven games. During that stretch, their defense has held opponents to just 14.4 points per game. That included games against Buffalo and Miami, while the other six games were against teams in the bottom half of the league in scoring, twice against New England, Denver, Green Bay, Pittsburgh, and Chicago without fields. This week presents one of their more difficult challenges against Minnesota, particularly considering Justin Jefferson has absolutely demolished zone coverage this season to the tune of an 83.6% reception rate, 720 yards, and two scores. The ground game comes with uncertainty due to the expected level of involvement of lead back Michael Carter. That said, Novak has seen more than 56% of the offensive snaps for the Jets since Brees Hall went down with a season-ending ACL tear, leaving us with a good idea of the kind of upside, or lack thereof, any Jets back carries this week. The Jets backfield has combined to average 27 running back opportunities over the previous four games since Hall's injury, which should be thought to be split at least two ways. More likely three, considering rookie Zonovan Knight saw his opportunities at the expense of recent addition James Robinson last week, the latter of whom was ruled a healthy and active. As in, expect the lead back, whether Carter, Robinson, or Knight, to handle around 50% of the offensive snaps, with the rest likely split up between the other two healthy and active backs. The pure rushing matchup yields a well below average 4.175 net adjusted line yards metric against a Minnesota defense holding opposing backs to just 3.76 yards per carry this season. First off, Elijah Moore's fall from grace, both in his performance this season and the graces of his teammates and coaching staff, has been difficult to watch as a fan of his talent, but the reality of the situation has meant Moore has not cracked a modest 66% snap rate since week four. That has left rookie Garrett Wilson as the lone near-every-down pass catcher on this offense, with Corey Davis returning from injury in Week 12 to a 68% snap rate, and Braxton Berrios and Denzel Mims combining with more for the remainder of the wide receiver snaps. Primary pass-catching tight end Tyler Conklin has been between 68 and 81% snap rates in every game since Week 3, with the team increasing their 12 personnel rates to the 40-55% to range since their Week 10 bye, 
through the increased utilization of blocking tight end C.J. Uzoma. Considering the current state of the pass-catching options on the team, I would tentatively expect the increased rates of 12 personnel to continue here, as it appears to be a concerted effort by the coaching staff to change the dynamics of their offense. Finally, while the team appeared to be opening things up through the air last week based on a quick glance at the box scores, they ran a league-average 63 offensive plays from scrimmage, but mustered only 28 pass attempts. This is very much still a team that would like to control the time of possession and dictate the game environment through moderate pace and elevated rush rates. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings maintain a top 8 pass rate over expectation value and third ranked 63.8% overall pass rate under the new tutelage of first year head coach Kevin O'Connell, who has largely made good on the offseason hope for increased pass rates from the Vikings this year, with over a 5% increase in pass rate from last season. On top of the elevated pass rate over expectation, this team is playing at a top 5 overall pace of play, the ninth fastest pace of play in the first half, and the fifth fastest pace with the score within 6 points. Almost more importantly, Minnesota has run above the league average in plays per game, about 63, in 7 of their 11 contests so far this season, with 6 of those contests checking in at 69 plays or more. This offense is regularly running 10% or more plays per game than the average team this season. Dalvin Cook has regained his borderline elite workhorse status as the season has progressed after starting the season seeding additional work to back up running back Alexander Madison. Cook has seen 84% of the offensive snaps or more in four of his last six games, with one of those games being the blowout loss to the Cowboys in Week 11, 40-3. Furthermore, his past game usage has returned to near-elite levels during that time after he started the season with only 15 targets over his team's first five games, seeing five or more targets in the last four non-blowout loss games. He has also averaged a tidy 23.75 running back opportunities in those four non-blowout loss games since the team's Week 7 bye. The matchup is far from ideal, however, against the Jets team holding opposing backfields to 22 DK points per game. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.22 net adjusted line yards metric. Expect Madison to continue serving a strict change-of-pace role whenever Dalvin needs a breather. Another thing O'Connell instituted in this new-look offense is the dynamic ways of getting the ball to his top playmaker, similar to Cooper Cup last year in Los Angeles, in this case, Justin Jefferson. Jefferson currently leads the league in routes run, ranks 3rd in snap share and targets, 116, ranks 7th in team target market share, 29.4%, and has seen the most red zone targets in the league. But not only that, it's how they are getting the ball to Jefferson. He also leads the league in yards after the catch, which is remarkable considering what Tua Tagovailoa and Tyreek Hill are doing in Miami. I alluded to it above, and we'll talk more about it below, but a massive portion of how this game environment eventually plays out likely involves how the Jets choose to handle Jefferson. The Jets play elevated rates of cover 2 and cover 3 zone alignments this season, allowing their athletic 4-3 front and unique linebacker and safety blitz packages to wreak havoc in the backfield. The problem, at least on paper, is that Jefferson has annihilated both of those primary coverages this season. Do the Jets fundamentally alter their approach on defense and run more man coverages with topside safety help, or do they stick with increased zone coverage rates? We really have no way of knowing for sure, but what we do know is that the Jets ran their highest rate of zone coverage against Miami in Week 5 at 88%. TJ Hawkinson was brought over at the trade deadline and has immediately served as the beta pass-catching option for the Vikings, seeing 34 targets to Adam Thielen's 27 over the last four games. 
Hawkinson's arrival has forced the team into increased rates of 12 personnel, which has impacted K.J. Osborne's snap rates the most. Expect all of Dalvin Cook, Justin Jefferson, Adam Thielen, and T.J. Hawkinson to see 90% or more of the offensive snaps in a standard week. Likeliest Game Flow This game comes with a relatively wide range of outcomes, largely dependent on New York's ability to contain Justin Jefferson. Dalvin Cook and Adam Thielen have largely been bottled up this season, each struggling with the efficiency in their respective areas of work, and while the Jets have one of the top secondaries in the league this season, they play increased rates of zone coverage, and Justin Jefferson has absolutely owned zone this season. Furthermore, we were worried about Kirk Cousins against an aggressive New England defense without Derisaw last week, and he proceeded to have his most efficient game of the season. We've also seen Cousins struggle when under pressure during his career. Finally, the Jets have shown to be highly reactive to game environments in their offensive design and production, wanting to manage the game via a balanced offense and moderate pace of play, but willing to open things up if forced. All of that comes together to highlight the fact that most paths flow towards a muted game environment, with Justin Jefferson the single player likeliest to break it open. It will be interesting to see how Salah and the Jets choose to handle Jefferson considering how elite he is against zone. The Commanders at the Giants kick off Sunday, December 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.0. Game Overview by Hilo Both teams rank in the bottom seven in pass rate over expectation. The Giants hold the league's fifth highest overall rush rate, while the Commanders rank 11th. The Commanders boast a stout run defense, while the Giants have been gashed on the ground. The Giants have generated the fewest explosive plays this season, while the Commanders surprisingly rank top 10 in both explosive rush rate and explosive pass rate. Both of these teams have willed their way to a winning record and current playoff spot. Giants sit in the 6th seed and the Commanders sit in the 7th seed. This game is about as close to a must-win for each of these teams as can be for a Week 13 game, with the winner likely in control of their own destiny for a playoff berth. The Giants sit at 7-4, and, and the Commanders sit at 7-5, and five, yet both teams have a negative point differential. The Giants rank 22nd in scoring, while the Commanders rank 24th. Both teams surprisingly rank in the top half of the league in red zone touchdown rate allowed, with the Giants at 5th at just 48.84%, 36% at home, and the Commanders at 13th at 53.85%. How Washington will try to win. For all the things that head coach Ron Rivera is not, he is still one of the better game planners in the league. As in, he is highly adept at getting his team ready for their specific opponent on a weekly basis. The biggest problem for Rivera and his coaching staff is that they are hot garbage at adapting during the game. Basically, when the commanders are afforded the opportunity to execute their game plan coming into a game, they perform fairly well. When they are pushed to adjust mid-game, look out. Washington has built their identity around their defense and backfield, dialing up downfield shots and generating explosive runs through a dynamic run-blocking scheme. The biggest problems for the Commanders have been with their current quarterback situation and a lack of explosiveness from lead back Brian Robinson, whose workload is highly reliant on game flow. That said, it is going to take a lot to shake Washington away from elevated rush rates and a modest pace of play.
the Washington backfield has devolved into a true timeshare between Brian Robinson and Antonio Gibson, with Robinson likelier to see more snaps in a positive game script, and Gibson likelier to see more snaps in back-and-forth games and in a negative game script. Both backs rank near the bottom of the league in explosive rush rate and true yards per carry, but their stout defense has allowed them to largely stick to a run-balanced approach in most games this season. Keep an eye on the status of Gibson as the week progresses, as he was limited to start the week with a foot injury. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above-average 4.48 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Giants defense allowing a robust 5.2 yards per running back carry this season. Wide receiver Terry McLaurin is clearly the top option on this team. That said, he has seen double-digit targets just once all season and has surpassed 100 yards receiving three times and has scored only two touchdowns. His 21.4% targets per route run rate ranks 52nd amongst qualifying wide receivers, and his 22.4% team target market share falls well below elite levels, 31st. What should be considered a positive for his fantasy outlook is the fact that McLaurin has seen the second most deep targets this season, 22. What the field is likely to miss is the fact that McLaurin's snap rate has taken a hit recently, with 86%, 72%, and 82% of the offensive snaps played over the previous three games after ripping off six consecutive games with a 95% snap rate or higher. That increase in snap rate perfectly aligns with the injury to rookie Jahan Dotson, who left week four with an injury and missed the subsequent five games. Tight end Logan Thomas also either missed or was limited in five of those games. Expect McLaurin to see around 80% of the offensive snaps, followed by Logan Thomas in at the 65-75% to snap rate range, Curtis Samuel and Jahan Dodson in the 60-65% to snap rate range, and primary blocking tight end John Bates in at the 50-60% to snap rate range. The biggest knock to the fantasy expectation for Washington pass catchers, outside of low expected volume, is quarterback Taylor Heineke's numbers when pressured. The Giants blitz at the highest rate in the league. As the presumed starting quarterback is ranked above only Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, and Trevor Lawrence when under pressure this season. How New York will try to win. The Giants have been very similar to the Commanders in the way they are approaching games this season, albeit with a much lower explosive play rate, like the lowest in the league. New York has operated almost exclusively from 11 personnel this season, even through numerous injuries to their pass catching core. The problem is that their primary wide receivers are now Darius Slayton, who began the year fifth on the depth chart, Richie James, who began the year beaten out by rookie David Sills for playing time, and Isaiah Hodgkins, who began the year with the Bills. Rookie tight end Daniel Bellinger has an outside chance at returning this week after returning to a limited session on Wednesday following an orbital bone surgery and subsequent recovery. Their defense has played the highest rate of man coverage this season and has blitzed at the highest rate in the league, each of which are staples of a Wink-Martindale defense. Another staple of a Wink-Martindale defense is a low red zone touchdown rate allowed, a metric that the Giants rank fifth in the league in this season. Basically, this team is built to disrupt opposing drives, clamp down in the red zone, and ride Saquon Barkley for as long as possible before adjusting to the game environment in the fourth quarter. Speaking of Saquon, enough has been said of his involvement on this offense this season, but allow me to expand. 
Barkley currently ranks first in snap share, second in opportunity share, second in carries, fourth in rush yards, and sixth in fantasy points per game amongst qualified running backs this year. As we've also discussed in this space previously this year, we can no longer view Saquon as much more than a yardage and touchdown back, who is averaging only 4.3 targets per game this season. Matt Breida should continue operating in a strict change of pace role. The rushing matchup yields a laughable 4.11 net adjusted line yards metric against a Washington defense holding opposing backfields to 4.11 yards per carry. Honestly, not much more needs to be said about the Giants' pass game expectation outside of stating that they have generated the fewest plays of 20-plus yards this season, and the Commanders rank second in yards after the catch allowed. Anyway, expect another week of Darius Slayton as the top pass catcher, with Richie James and newcomer Isaiah Hodgkins likely holding down the wide receiver 2 and wide receiver 3 roles with 65-70% to 70% snap rate expectations. Kenny Galladay should continue to see 35-45% to 45% of the offensive snaps, while the tight end position is currently up in the air after rookie tight end Daniel Bellinger returned to a limited session on Wednesday following eye surgery. Regardless of Bellinger's status, expect the tight end room to operate via a three-man rotation. Likeliest Game Flow I wrote up the game overview section with so many statistics on purpose, as it paints a very clear picture of what the likeliest scenario is for this game. That said, division games late in the year that are borderline must-win games for each team always carry a wide range of potential outcomes. It's just that these two teams are so similar in the way they approach trying to win games, which is basically to try and make it to the fourth quarter and steal a victory. As such, there isn't a ton of room for this game environment to turn into something worth going out of our way to attack, particularly on a slate seemingly overflowing with such games. Wide ranges of outcomes, but better paths to erupting. A lot of that is due to how the Giants run their offense, which doesn't schematically operate in a way that generates many chances for explosive plays, meaning the onus is likely on Taylor Heineke, Terry McLaurin, and Antonio Gibson to break the game open. That's not a bet I'll be looking to place my hard-earned Benjamins on this week. Finally, Taylor Heineke's grades when pressured rank above only Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, and Trevor Lawrence this season, which should be a primary factor in how this game evolves. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Titans at the Eagles Kickoff Sunday, December 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Hilo The Titans have run only 56.8 offensive plays per game this season, the second fewest in the league, after finishing 2021 ranked second in average time of possession. A lot of that dip in time of possession and plays per game is due to a net drive success rate value that ranks 29th in the league. Their opponent this week, the Eagles, rank 4th in net drive success rate, 7th in average time of possession, and have averaged an above-average 66 plays per game. The Titans have a very clear path of least resistance on the ground, which aligns with their preferred method of attack. The Eagles have a very clear path of least resistance through the air, but it remains to be seen how they will choose to attack an opponent that presents a pass-funnel matchup. Quarterback Jalen Hurts has not thrown more than 28 pass attempts since Week 5 against the Cardinals. 
One of the hashtag revenge narratives on this slate is A.J. Brown against his former team. Brown reportedly felt slighted by the organization after they decided to trade him instead of pay him after the work he put in for them over the first three years of his career. How Tennessee Will Try to Win The Titans have taken their standard game plan under head coach Mike Vrabel to new levels with the play of their defensive line and linebacker core, ranking first in the league in defensive rush DVOA, first in defensive adjusted line yards, and fifth in yards allowed per running back carry this season. That said, a dead last overall pace of play and 29th ranked net drive success rate combined to have the Titans ranked just 19th in average time of possession after finishing second to the Packers last season. Furthermore, the team has averaged only 56.8 plays per game, the second fewest to only the Panthers. Basically, this team wants to crack down on the run, get pressure on the quarterback to disrupt drives, and play slow with an elevated rush rate in order to stay in games into the fourth quarter. And for what seems like the better part of the previous four seasons, it's working. The biggest positive for the Titans this week is a matchup with the extreme run-funnel nature of the Philadelphia Eagles who ranks second in DVOA against the pass, but just 24th in DVOA against the run. Derrick Henry's snap rate has fluctuated wildly this season, with final touch counts almost directly correlated to his time spent on the field. As in, Henry has played six games since the team's Week 6 bye. He has seen 71% or more of the offensive snaps in three of those games, and 59% or fewer in three of those games. He averages 32 running back opportunities in the three games on the higher side and 19.67 in the three games on the lower end, with two of the three games with low snap rates coming in losses. The Titans are currently 4.5-point dogs on the road. The most telling part is that his touch-per-snap rates have remained fairly consistent all year. It's simply a function of Henry being on the field more in positive game scripts. Dontrell Hilliard should continue serving as the clear change of pace and long down and distance to go back, with a snap rate tied to the previous conversation. The pure rushing matchup yields a well above average 4.60 net adjusted line yards metric against an Eagles defense seeding 24.9 DK points per game to opposing backfields. Titans pass catchers, as a collective, have exactly two combined instances of more than 81% snap rates, with Robert Woods and Nick Westbrook-Ekine each going over the mark in Week 5, the first game following Traylon Burke's injury. That makes sense considering the makeup of this team, a team that utilizes 12 personnel at almost a 60% clip this season. Rookie wide receiver Traylon Burks is the spark of the offense through the air, leading the team in targets per route run rate by a wide margin. He is also the only pass catcher to score more than a modest 13 fantasy points without scoring multiple touchdowns this season, as NWI did it once on a blow-up, two-touchdown game with Traylon out, and tight end Austin Hooper did it once on a two-touchdown game in Week 11. Basically, the low overall volume from this offense, combined with the low pass rate and slow pace of play, has meant no pass catcher outside of Traylon Burks can be considered viable outside of fluky variants. How Philadelphia Will Try to Win The Eagles are right at league average in pass rate over expectation, but carry a low 47.93% overall pass rate, third lowest in the league, due to routinely finding themselves in control of game environments throughout their 10-1 start to the season. 
They've paired the elevated rush rates with an increased pace of play, ranking third in first half pace of play, second in situation neutral pace of play, and first in pace of play with the score within six points this season. That, when combined with the fourth best net drive success rate, has afforded them the opportunity to run 66 plays per game, seventh most in the league. And yet through all of that, quarterback Jalen Hurts has not attempted more than 28 passes since week five after starting the season with four out of five contests between 31 and 36 pass attempts. It's not clear exactly how the Eagles will choose to attack an opponent that's very clearly a pass-funnel defense, with the most recent comparison likely the Commanders. In their two games against the Commanders this season, Jalen Hurts saw his second most pass attempts, 35, and his second fewest, 26. That Week 10 loss was also the fewest plays the Eagles have run this season, 50. Basically, your guess is as good as mine as to how the Eagles choose to attack here, with the matchup clearly pointing towards an increase in pass volume, but a coaching staff indicating an unwillingness to largely deviate from their run-first game plan. Running back Miles Sanders continues to lead a three-headed backfield conglomerate, shared with regular change of pace and long down-and-distance back Kenneth Gainwell and reserve breather back Boston Scott. Sanders has been between 52% and 67% snap rates in all but one game this season, which should be considered his likeliest range of outcomes here. Sanders has averaged 17.7 running back opportunities per game this year, with only two games of more than 20 touches on the season. Kenneth Gainwell has four rushing scores on the year and continues to aggravate Sanders' fantasy managers everywhere with seemingly sporadic red zone usage. Furthermore, Jalen Hurts has six games with double-digit carries this year, further diluting the expected workloads for the backs. The pure rushing matchup yields a below-average 4.13 net-adjusted line yards metric in one of the crazier strength-on-strength matchups we will see all season. The pass offense has become extremely concentrated in the absence of tight end Dallas Goddard, who is currently on injured reserve for at least two more games with a shoulder injury. A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, Kez Watkins, and tight end Jack Stoll have all played over 80% of the team's offensive snaps last week for an offense primarily run out of 11 personnel. Watkins' increase in snaps came at the direct detriment of Zach Pascal, who played a season-low 11% snap rate. The matchup very clearly funnels expected usage through the air, but again, it remains to be seen how the Eagles will choose to attack here. Also notable is the hashtag revenge narrative for wide receiver A.J. Brown, who has only three games all season of double-digit looks, but has finished as the overall wide receiver one once already this year. The underlying metrics amongst Brown and Devonta Smith are nearly identical this year, as each is equally as capable against man, zone, and whatever coverages are sent their direction. Kez Watkins has seen bracket usage in that the bulk of his work is either near the line of scrimmage or deep downfield. There really isn't an intermediate role for him currently. Finally, Jack Stoll has exactly one target in the two games with more than 80% snap rates since Goddard's injury, leaving this passing game highly concentrated. Likeliest Game Flow It is all but assured we see the Titans come out and try to control the game environment via their run game and suffocating run defense, with an emphasis on getting Derrick Henry rolling early and containing quarterback Jalen Hurts on the other side. Considering the Eagles are also a run-first, low-pass-volume offense, but find themselves in a difficult-on-paper matchup, how the game environment and flow ultimately develop will likely come down to how the Eagles choose to attack which all seems counterintuitive. Stick with me here. The way to ensure the Titans are thrown off their game plan is to score early and make them one-dimensional. 
The problem isn't that we haven't seen the Eagles score early in games, because we have, and frequently. The problem is that the Titans are actually well-suited to slow the Eagles' likeliest plan of attack down enough to remain run-balanced deeper into the game. As such, the quickest way to gain the upper hand would be to come out firing through the air to the dynamic trio of A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, and Kez Watkins against a poor pass defense. Whether or not that ultimately transpires remains to be seen here, leaving this game environment with two equally as likely potential game flows. In the first instance, the Eagles struggle early against the top-run defense of the Titans, allowing Derrick Henry to remain on the field at a higher rate and see increased usage as a result, likely keeping the game close deeper into the contest. In the second instance, the Eagles are able to strike early through the air, effectively removing Henry from the game plan and forcing the Titans into one-dimensionality. Either way, the Eagles' volume likely remains relatively equivalent in either scenario, whereas the Titans could find themselves with an immensely wide range of potential outcomes. This one is tricky. The Seahawks at the Rams kick off Sunday, December 4th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 41.0. Find the full write-up for this game on the NFL Edge at OneWeekSeason.com. The Dolphins at the 49ers kick off Sunday, December 4th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Miami is likely to lean into their elite passing game and avoid the 49ers' dominant run defense as often as possible. San Francisco's offense may also have to lean more on the pass than usual due to injuries to their running backs and a strong Miami run defense. This game has explosive players on both sides, along with defenses that are stout against the run but exploitable in the secondary. We likely need the Miami offense to have early success in order for this game to truly be pushed. How Miami Will Try to Win In their Week 12 win over the Texans, the Dolphins were up 30-0 at halftime. At that point, they had called pass plays on 35 of 43 offensive plays, 81%, despite the fact that the Texans entered the game ranked bottom third in the NFL against the run by pretty much any metric you can find. Over the last five weeks, since Tua Tagovailoa returned from injury, the Dolphins rank fourth in the NFL in pass rate over expectation. This week, the Dolphins face a 49ers defense that ranks top five in the league against the run by any metric, and who head coach Mike McDaniel knows very well from his time as the offensive coordinator in San Francisco. McDaniel has shown this season that he does two things extremely well. First, he plays to his players' team's strengths and puts them in a position to succeed. Second, he is aggressive and has an attacking mindset trying to build and grow leads rather than slowing down after early successes. The 49ers have faced exactly one high-level offense with explosive pieces and a good quarterback, and that was Week 7 against the Chiefs, who dropped 42 points and 423 passing yards on them. We know McDaniel has it in him to say forget it and just throw it every play, so don't be surprised if, when, that happens this week. How San Francisco Will Try to Win The 49ers offense is loaded with weapons and is starting to find its group, scoring 30-plus points in two of their last four games. This week, they face some familiar faces, with Mike McDaniel, Raheem Mostert, and Jeff Wilson all returning to the Bay Area. 
The 49ers currently have the second best odds in the NFC to win the Super Bowl despite having the fourth best record, as experts can see the potential that their dominant defense and elite playmakers give them. They had turned to more of a committee approach in the backfield recently, with Christian McCaffrey and Eliza Mitchell splitting work. But Mitchell is now out for a few weeks, and CMC is battling some knee soreness. The 49ers have the 8th slowest situation neutral pace of play and 8th lowest pass rate in the NFL through 12 weeks, which shows their commitment to their running game and defense and relatively conservative offensive approach. Even when they do turn to the air, they focus primarily on short area targets and allow their players to make the plays after the catch. This week will be an interesting test of the will of the 49ers offense to play their way, as they face a Dolphins defense that is much stronger against the run than the pass and faces the fifth highest pass rate from opponents in the NFL. That pass funnel tendency of the Dolphins defense should also be exaggerated by the familiarity that McDaniel has with the team and the likelihood that he can help the Dolphins disrupt the 49ers preferred method of attack. Finally, the injuries in the backfield will make it hard for San Francisco to lean as heavily as they would like on their running game. We should expect a slightly more pass-heavy approach from San Francisco in this matchup than they usually have, with an emphasis on short area passing. And it also wouldn't be surprising to see Debo Samuel be featured more heavily as a runner this week than he has been most of this season as we can remember that his heavy rushing usage last year was primarily sparked by injuries in the 49ers' backfield. At least for this one high-level matchup, a return to form of 2021 Debo would not be a surprise. Likeliest Game Flow Neither of these teams plays particularly fast, and both defenses are solid, meaning that we will need some explosive plays and or efficiency in the red zone for this game to take off in a meaningful way on the scoreboard. While we can safely assume that the Dolphins will throw the ball with high volume, it isn't a lock that they are able to turn those passes into points, even if they are able to move the ball down the field. On the 49ers' side, while their personnel and matchup may dictate more passes than usual, we should still expect a relatively balanced approach as their offense is philosophically based around their running game. The ability of this game to truly pop off relies mostly on the offensive success of the Dolphins. If they are able to have success and build a lead, they will force the 49ers to come out of their shell while also likely being unable to run the ball too well and drain the clock. Meanwhile, if the 49ers are able to control the game, then they will be able to slow things down and also be conservative in their defensive approach, which will help them limit the Dolphins' big playability. Ultimately, this game is likely to be a tight, lower scoring, something in the 24-17 range, game if San Francisco is in control of things. While there is potential for fireworks if the Dolphins can build a lead and get the 49ers to push the ball more with their explosive playmakers. The Chiefs at the Bengals kick off Sunday, December 4th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 53. Game Overview by Mike Johnson A rematch of last season's AFC Championship. This game has star power and explosiveness on both sides of the ball. The Bengals are welcoming back two of their premier offensive players in running back Joe Mixon and wide receiver Jamar Chase. While a shootout is possible, both teams know each other well enough that a modest scoring game is also very viable. From a DFS perspective, high salaries and spread out usage make this game somewhat difficult to know how to stack. How Kansas City will try to win. The Chiefs' offense continues to roll 
as they lead the NFL in scoring and yards per play through 12 weeks. The strategy behind Kansas City's offensive success has been playing with pace, third fastest situation neutral pace of play, and aggressiveness, highest pass rate over expectation, or PROE, in the league. The Chiefs have rolled through several players at the wide receiver and running back positions this year, but have produced as a unit regardless of who is on the field. The Chiefs appear to have things condensing in their backfield, with Isaiah Pacheo seeing the highest usage in Week 12 of any Chiefs running back all season, while Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is on IR and Jarek McKinnon is battling a groin injury. Meanwhile, Juju Smith-Schuster returned from injury in Week 12 and should be full go as the lead receiver for Patrick Mahomes. From a philosophical perspective, the Chiefs have to enter this game knowing they are likely going to need to score points. They don't really need an incentive to be pushed to throw aggressively, but it's safe to say they will have their foot on the gas early in this game and won't slow down even if they build a lead due to their respect for the explosiveness of the Bengals' offense that is at full strength and scored 61 points against them in two contests last season and has scored 30-plus points in four of their last six games. The Chiefs' offense is also likely to have a bit more of a traditional feel to it at this point due to the absence of McCole Hardman and Kadarius Toney. Hardman and Toney were the players usually featured on the gadget plays, such as jet sweeps and other short area plays, and while Juju and Sky Moore can function somewhat in that role as well, it will likely become less of a staple to do what they do. Likewise, the losses of CEH and McKinnon leave the Chiefs with more of a prototypical running back than the pass-catching types he was previously splitting reps with. The likely result? More typical running plays and short area concepts, as well as more downfield passing, less gadgetry. This week, the Chiefs face a Bengals defense that has been solid at times this year, but has been vulnerable down the field in recent weeks against some teams who have otherwise struggled to push the ball deep in the Titans, Steelers, and Browns. It is no coincidence that these struggles by the Bengals' pass defense have coincided with the loss of star cornerback Chidobi Awuzie. Expect a pass-heavy game plan from the Chiefs against a Bengals' pass defense that looks better on paper than their recent form has shown. How Cincinnati Will Try to Win The Bengals had a lot of glow on them entering the season, and some people thought they had a Super Bowl hangover when their offense had some struggles early in the year being held to 20 points or less in each of their first two games, and again in Week 5 thanks to some poor red zone decisions and execution. They have since put those concerns to bed, with a 5-1 record over their last six games and scoring 30-plus points in four of those instances. This week, they look to continue their recent winning streak over the bully of the AFC as they once again have a late-season matchup at home against Patrick Mahomes and his high-powered offense. Despite playing without Jamar Chase for the last four games and Joe Mixon for the last one and a half, the Bengals' offense keeps on ticking. The return of Chase especially means a lot for the Bengals in this matchup as he eviscerated the Chiefs' secondary in Week 17 of 2021 to the tune of 266 receiving yards and three touchdowns. Similar to what we discussed about the Chiefs' offense, the Bengals will also enter this game knowing that points are going to be necessary for a victory. The Chiefs' defense is middle of the pack in most metrics, but has been beaten at times by stronger offenses and is tied for the sixth-fewest interceptions in the NFL. The Bengals have the third-highest PROE in the NFL and play at a much faster pace than they did last year as well. While many teams will try to take a run-heavy approach against the Chiefs to keep the ball out of the hands of Patrick Mahomes, the Bengals are unlikely to do such a thing due to their confidence in Joe Burrow and his receivers, as well as their lack of efficiency on the ground, ranking 29th in the NFL in yards per carry. Likeliest Game Flow 
Game flow is everything here. And as we have discussed already, what we have on both sides are very talented and aggressive offenses who believe in what they do and are likeliest to have a we-need-to-score-a-lot-of-points mindset, rather than the we-need-to-keep-the-other-guy-off-the-field approach that can often slow games like this down. While there are paths to a slightly lower-scoring game here, the floor on this game is relatively safe due to the play-calling tendencies of each team. Said another way, if when one or both teams have a bad drive or two, they are likely to be quick possessions with zero or one first down, but also likely to feature incompletions and stopped clocks. Basically, if the first few possessions start out flat, it isn't going to be like many games where all of a sudden each team has the ball three times and the score is 3-0 and with six minutes left in the half. From a game flow perspective, the Chiefs are the team most likely to take an early lead based on the history between the teams, as they jumped out to 21-3 and 21-7 leads in the two games last season. However, the Chiefs have struggled scoring early in games at times this year, scoring more than 14 first-half points only three times this season and coming from behind to win several of their games. Meanwhile, the Bengals have scored 14-plus first-half points in six of their last nine games. This is to say that it wouldn't be surprising for either team to build an early lead, and both teams are unlikely to slow down their aggressiveness with or without a lead. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Chargers at the Raiders Kick off Sunday, December 4th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 50.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The status of Josh Jacobs, calf injury, clouds the outlook of the Raiders' offense and this game as a whole. Expect a competitive game. Despite mediocre records, these teams combined have lost by more than one score only three times. Elite on-paper matchups await both teams in the areas that they prefer to attack. How Los Angeles will try to win The Chargers' offense is a high-octane unit that is aggressive and fast-moving. They lead the league in both pass rate and tempo, which is to be expected when you have a young stud quarterback with a cannon for an arm, talented wide receivers, and an all-world running back whose best skill set is his receiving ability. This week, they have to be licking their chops, as they are set to face the league's worst defense by Football Outsiders DVOA metrics and PFF's 27th graded coverage unit. The Raiders' defense has surrendered 20-plus points to everyone but Russell Wilson this season, making it a safe bet that the Chargers' offense has a reasonable scoring floor in this game. Perhaps even more alarming for the Raiders' defense in this matchup than their cumulative statistics this season is the fact that they have the bottom-ranked pass defense in the NFL despite facing only the 19th highest pass rate in the NFL. This means that the Chargers' pass-heavy game approach has the potential to light up the Raiders in ways that other teams have not fully leveraged. Geno Smith just set his season high in passing yards last week against the Raiders. And Justin Herbert should have a field day against his own heavy coverage scheme for the Raiders that will allow him to pick them apart with his personnel that is best suited for working the short to intermediate areas of the field. There isn't anything too crazy to expect from the Chargers' approach to this game, as they have a clear way that they will want to play, and this matchup suits their strengths perfectly. How Las Vegas Will Try to Win 
Last week, in an overtime victory over the Seahawks, the Raiders' offense continued to be extremely concentrated on two players, Devontae Adams and Josh Jacobs. Over the last four weeks, the Raiders have given the ball to one of those two, via carries or targets, on 67% or more of their offensive plays in every game. While three of the Raiders' five touchdowns went to other players, the concentration of that usage is truly wild in today's NFL, where many teams like to spread the ball around. From a philosophical perspective, it is pretty clear after Jacobs ran for 229 yards last week that the Raiders should want to attack the Chargers' run defense that ranks last in the NFL in yards per carry allowed. However, Jacobs entered and emerged from that game with a calf strain that has him limited in practice as they head into this divisional matchup. The status of Jacobs should be closely monitored, as he seems likely to play, but it also wouldn't be shocking for his workload to be slightly toned down and have him given more breaks, given the nature of his injury. That being said, the Raiders declined the fifth-year option on his rookie contract before this season and appear hell-bent on riding him into the ground, while head coach Josh McDaniels is likely more focused on his own job security than the long-term health of a player who will almost certainly be gone after this season. So, long story short, if Jacobs is playing, we should probably expect his competitive juices to have him wanting to be on the field as much as possible, and McDaniels to oblige. The Chargers' pass defense, at first glance, appears to be playing man coverage at one of the highest rates in the NFL, 6th through 12 weeks. However, on a weekly basis, their coverage rates have kind of been all over the map this season, as they have played over 50% man coverage in four games this season, but under 25% man coverage in three other games. NFL average is roughly 30%. The games in which they played a majority of man coverage were against Kansas City, twice, Arizona, and Cleveland. The games where they played zone coverage primarily were against Seattle, Atlanta, and San Francisco. For what it's worth, the Chargers played 31.1% man coverage in the first meeting between these teams when Devontae Adams dominated them for 141 receiving yards. I would expect a similar middle-of-the-road approach to this game, with extra attention focused in Adams' direction. Likeliest Game Flow There is certainly a lot of potential for this game to get going in a big way. On both sides of the ball, we have offenses that have clear preferred methods of attack that set up perfectly against the weaknesses of their opponents. The Raiders have a balanced and concentrated attack with an offensive line that is better at run blocking than pass blocking and are facing a defense that is awful against the run and was shredded by their top receiver once already this season. The Chargers are an aggressive pass-heavy team facing the worst pass defense in the league. It isn't hard to see the potential for this game, and the Chargers are the more aggressive and explosive team, which makes it most likely they would be the ones to jump out to an early lead, which would help push a Raiders team that will play slower when they are able to. All of that being said, we should also consider some of the risks here. The biggest questions regarding this matchup revolve around the health of Josh Jacobs, and the potential for the Chargers to give a ton of extra attention to Devontae Adams, two things that seem fairly correlated. If Jacobs is hindered and the Raiders are not fully able to leverage their strength and exploit the Chargers' run defense, the Chargers will be able to give much more focus to Adams and potentially slow him and the passing game down as well. For this reason, we should be watching reports about Jacobs closely, as his status will have a great effect on the way this game plays out on both sides of the ball.